Yes. I was reading in a recent edition of Prayers of Queen Kuntia. I noticed that the, as time has gone by, editing and changed the prophet's choice of words from the Red Indians to indigenous people. Indigenous people. Indigenous people. And it looked like a trend of people, uh, seems like wanting to sort of muzzle Prabhupada. <laughs> Uh, if, if Prabhupada, if you would have told Prabhupada about it, Prabhupada would have agreed instantly to that change. You know, it's interesting if you, you know, it's not that, you know, the real Prabhupada offends everyone and just like in your face and, you know, no, that's not the real Prabhupada. The real Prabhupada was a gentleman. Prabhupada knew that certain words, you just can't speak that way. He would adjust it. And he did. There are many cases where people always told Prabhupada, you know, you can't speak this way. So he said, then change it. You know, sometimes they always get attached to this macho Prabhupada that can just like be in everyone's face. I didn't come here to learn anything. I came to, you know, take away your spoons and forks and knives and, you know, make you eat with your fingers. And it, I mean, is that really why Prabhupada got on the boat? <laughs> to, you know, show people how to eat with their fingers? I mean, I mean, come on. The real Prabhupada was sensitive and compassionate and eager to do anything humanly possible to make people comfortable. That's Prabhupada. Not, you know, sometimes devotees, you know, they like this Prabhupada who they imagine is kind of like, you know, this macho Prabhupada who just blows everyone away. That's not the real Prabhupada. You know, it's interesting because you study great controversies in, in the early days of other religions, like say in Christianity, they had all these famous councils where they debated theology, like the Council of Nicaea and other councils. You know, at least what you could say for them, as much as, you know, whatever I may think about that theology, that's another topic, but at least they were talking about real philosophical issues. For example, one of the most bizarre, but not surprising, controversies is some people who obsessed with the fact that Prabhupada's books were reading. His books were re-edited, re redactados. So, interestingly, no one has ever showed or even claimed or imagined that philosophically anything is at stake. There's absolutely nothing at stake philosophically. It's exactly the same philosophy. They're actually, they dedicate their lives obsessively. They go to war over literary style. I mean, it's amazing, over literary style. So whether you say indigenous American or the Red Indians, philosophically, it's totally meaningless. There's absolutely no philosophical difference. And if you look at the relationship of Prabhupada with his own editors, he actually didn't care. Hayagriva, for example, really was kind of a draconian editor sometimes. I mean, he would take out paragraphs. I know that because he edited one book, Prabhupada's Philosophy Book, and I went back and kind of re-edited it, and I could see what he was doing. It's like, oh my God, there goes a paragraph. So Prabhupada, what he really wanted, get the philosophy straight. Even to the point where in 1977, before Prabhupada uh, passed on, that he was seriously considering to have his disciples, who were Sanskritists, 
translate the Bhagavatam verses, and he would just do the purport because he said, my concern is the purport. He wanted to get the philosophy straight. The last thing in the world he was interested in is literary style. So Prabhupada didn't care about something. Why do you care about it so much? If Prabhupada didn't care about it. Prabhupada's, it doesn't mean we can just go and edit everything. I'm not saying that. But here's something else. In, in, in a few years, whether it's 20 or 30 years, I mean, I have to look it up. Prabhupada's books go into the public domain. And anyone legally can produce their version of Prabhupada's books. They can edit it any way they want. They can footnote it. They can do this. They can do that. So clearly, Prabhupada's overriding concern was the philosophy, Siddhanta, get that straight. And so becoming obsessed with stylistic changes that mean nothing philosophically, it just doesn't remind me of Prabhupada at all. There's no evidence, there's no evidence that Prabhupada ever cared about that. Yes? I'm excited you're here. <laughs> oh, you are? Oh, the doctor. Hey. Hare Krishna. It's really nice to see you again. Um, so I was going to ask you, I, mean, I don't do a lot of preaching this busy being a doctor, but when I do talk about um, Consciousness or the temple or here. Um, and I do agree with you that less and less people know who the heart Christians are. So then if I say, oh, well, ask me, oh, so what religion or, you know, what do you practice? I'm like, well, I'm heart Christian. And they're like, what's that? And then, you know, you start to explain it, oh, Hindu. And they're like, well, I guess. And so I find that sometimes being in an Indian body kind of hinders that progress into saying, well, no, we're actually, you know, more than just Hindus, we're more than Indians. And so I was going to ask you, what are some words of advice to kind of sure. overcome that? Sure, glad to help. Um, first of all, first of all, when people ask me, like, what are you, what do you do? I always say I practice and teach bhakti yoga. And so as soon as you say, and then what they always ask is, oh, I know what yoga is. What is bhakti yoga? And then you're off to the races. So, because somehow you say Hare Krishna, because I mean, technically we're not Hare Krishna. It's like Krishna never says, think of me, become a Hare Krishna. What, <laughs> what Krishna, so I don't think we have to sort of humor that way of speaking. If you say I practice, and teach bhakti yoga. People respect it, very positive image. And then what was the second thing you said? Uh, there was another point that... Um, yeah, I think it's a great opportunity. You know, every problem is an opportunity. Dr. Phil learned all his stuff from me. <laughs> We're, you know, we've been fighting the courts for ages about him, right? Anyway, so another thing is you could say, you could say, you could even, say I would jump out in front of the issue. That's what you do sometimes, like, like in political stuff, 
you jump out in front of the issue. You preempt the point. They say, what is bhakti yoga? You could say, well, for example, obviously I was born to an Indian family. That's why I look like this. I was born in an Indian family. But in bhakti yoga, we understand that we're not Indians or you know, Americans or Chinese. We're really just all eternal souls. And so it's a spiritual science. It's a you know, devotional yoga practice based on that understanding that we're all equal precisely because we're all spiritual beings and not just this or that kind of body. And so right there, you jumped out ahead of it and the whole issue is dead. And now they're going to listen to you. So that's my advice as a uh, your consultant here. <laughs> hey, I'll trade you this for, for some medical advice. But anyway, yeah, I would say... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say bhakti yoga. I mean, I don't, I'm not going to say Hare Krishna. You the people in the airports or you the people on the street. I just, I don't even want to get into it. So I just say bhakti yoga. They like it. It's positive. And what does that mean? It means that even though I'm born in a particular body, you're born in a particular race or nationality, all of us are really just eternal beings. We're all, you know, spiritually united. And as soon as you say that, the whole conversation You've got control of the conversation, and it goes where you want it to go. Hey, we're both doctors, but just in different fields. <laughs> hey, you can say, hey, hey, say, Dr. Goswami, I'm feeling a pain in my century grammar. <laughs> You're a great yeah, asset. Yeah, actually, you're a great asset. You're a great asset for Prabhupada. Krishna West. So, yes. Hey, we, we did that whole crazy thing in Phoenix, didn't we? Yeah, we, we did. <laughs> <laughs> um, this, this question goes to the idea of um, temple spaces, I guess we could say, or holy spaces within our society that are more friendly towards a Western approach. So Devamrita Swami also speaks very, very highly of this and, you know, and emphasizes that this was something Shri Prabhupada wanted us to accomplish. What's that? To have sacred space. Sacred spaces that are open to the public. The idea of keeping cues, you know, that this idea that there are Western-style sacred spaces within our society. Yes. So how is it that it, it's so documented that this is Shri Prabhupada's, you know, what is the obstacle? How have we not been able to come to establishing that type of thing? When there are other senior leaders that also understand that and push it. Uh, we as a society seem yeah. completely incapable of coming to that point. It's, Any idea of what's, you know, yeah, I, I think I think. Problem? I think here we depart the realm of philosophy and theology and enter the realm of social psychology. I think the answers are not at all philosophical, they're entirely psychological. Where, you know, people have a powerful conversion experience and they're taught a certain way and so they take very superficial things like dress style, recipes, you know, certain recipes, or certain music styles is somehow as holy as God himself because it's like, it's all one seamless package. It's all one holy package. 
And if you attack one part of the package, you're attacking the whole package. I mean, I, I, mean, I swear to God, I'm not making this up. One very senior leader in ISKCON who, because I was, you know, presenting Krishna West, actually wrote a letter to some of his disciples saying that I had rejected the personal form of God and I did no longer believed in Krishna Loka. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> we need, maybe, you know, do we have any, is there any Ayurvedic medicine now? So, <laughs> but so, so it, it's like that, you see, when, when, you, when psychological, again, this is not philosophical, it's not historical, it's psychological. When someone is psychologically attached to and committed to this holy package, with no distinction, where you completely obfuscate, you completely blur a crucial distinction that Rupa Goswami makes and Prabhupada makes. There are fundamental, unchangeable principles of bhakti yoga, our philosophy, chanting Hare Krishna, associating with devotees, reading the Bhagavatam. No one can change these. And then there are details which are supposed to change so you don't go extinct like a woolly mammoth or something. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, Hare, the Hare Krishna movement in the West can't just become, you know, Vedic Jurassic Park. Or really, I mean, it's just so. If you, but if you confuse these two categories, if you obviously, if you think basic principles are variable details, like, like for like, we don't have to chant Hare Krishna. We can chant Amazing Grace or something. I mean, we can't chant. I mean, Amazing Grace is a really nice song, but we're also supposed to chant Hare Krishna then you're kind of missing the science. But if you think details are fundamental principles, you have ruined the spiritual science. You are no longer teaching the science. It's like, I mean, let's say you prescribe medicine and let's say whatever laboratory produced that medicine kind of, whoops, didn't quite get the ingredients right there. Even, yeah. So even let, let, let's say it has 70% of the right ingredients and 30%, whoops, you can kill the patient or it has no effect. So if our movement teaches, as so many people do, that variable details, details that never appear in any Acharya or Shastra list of basic rules, and they start to make these basic, like, okay, chant Hare Krishna, wear Indian clothes, you know, read the Bhagavatam, uh, use Indian recipes. You ruin the spiritual science. For example, sorry, I'm going to use this example. I can still run with this a bit. You're a doctor. And so, you know, you are a medical scientist. So uh, let's say someone's sick and let's say it's a treatable, curable condition. So if there is a doctor in the house, the person could be helped. But if someone has an exact same treatable, curable disease and there's no doctor, the fact that there is a medical science doesn't help that person. A sick person cannot be saved because somewhere in the world there's a medical science. You actually have to have a medical scientist. So the fact that Prabhupada presented a spiritual science won't save the world if there's no spiritual scientist. If there's just superstitious people, you know, with all their mythology and all their mixing of our philosophy, it doesn't save people. And that's why people aren't being saved in this country. 
Because we're not presenting it. We're presenting half spiritual science, half superstition and mythology. And frankly, any sane human being with half an ounce of intelligence knows that it's absurd to say that in order to love God, you have to dress like an Indian. I mean, any sane, rational human being knows that's absurd. We just don't know it. We're like the last ones to know that that's ridiculous. We're the last ones. Everybody else already knows it. So, I mean, ironically, even in regards to the practice of spiritual life, we're like behind the curve compared to other Americans. It's, you know, it's a little sad, but it's obviously true. We have to catch up with the non-devotee American public and realize that loving God is not about how you dress. I mean, obviously you should dress decently, Krishna does give a cultural criteria in the Gita. The Gita does not teach cultural anarchy. You know, you don't walk into a temple in, in, in a male or female bikini. The point is, Krishna says, do everything in the mode of goodness. What does it mean to dress in the mode of goodness? It means your clothes are clean, they're appropriate for the occasion, they're decent. Krishna doesn't teach ethnic culture. He teaches a spiritual science. The mode of goodness offered to Krishna is called Shuddha Sattva, which is a technical term for the spiritual platform. Vishuddha Sattva, Shuddha Sattva. So if we start teaching people not to be ethnically Indian, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just we're not Indians. But if we start teaching people to live in the mode of goodness, live a virtuous life, Offer your life to God, and that's the spiritual platform. That is a science. Who will deny that? The overwhelming majority of people in this country will agree that if you live a virtuous life and you dedicate that life to God, that's a spiritual life. I mean, who will argue with that? If you tell people, okay, spiritual life, put on a dhoti, put on a sari, you know, eat a chutney and a pakora. I mean... That's nuts. Sorry, I'm just, you know, can't help being a rabble rouser. But I mean, what rational human being in this country is going to believe that? I don't believe it. Of course, I'm deviant. Yes, go ahead. I believe it. Believe what? I And that's, you know, when I first came, 
I sort of did come in a bikini. I was dressed in very scantily clad on Halloween, and I came in from the deities, and no one told me anything. No devotee made me feel ashamed or, or anything, and I never left. <laughs> and now I understand, you know, and so when I look back on that day, I just, I sort of laugh, and, and I think if this would ever change, it would be the end of us. We would, we would lose our love, and for anyone who's just coming as they are, ready to surrender. And, and so that's just kind of what I was thinking as you were talking about that. So if we were able to have a balance where we explain our history as devotees and why we're so fond of these things, but of course, philosophically, it doesn't matter. Right. And that's what we're all stuck at right now. You know, how, how much it doesn't matter, but it's still very dear to us. And very good. I'm, that's a really good intelligence. Thing you did. So, okay, I'll respond, okay? We'll have a little fun here. First of all, um, I had a similar story. You know, you came in a bikini or something like that. First time I went to a Hare Krishna temple, it was the old temple of Los Angeles on La Cienega Boulevard, and they were all taking prasadam, and I was just, you know, I was like this 20-year-old college student from Berkeley, home for the summer in LA. And so I just walked in, I saw everybody eating, they said, you know, I come and take so I came and sat down with the devotees, and then someone came and tapped me on the shoulder and very nicely said, uh, could you please sit with the men? Because I sat down with the ladies. Because I did you know, I, I was, you know, we don't, we didn't make those distinctions, just that everyone, they're just all people. So, when I study history, I appreciate, I mean, I, I thought you really explained yourself well. This is my point of view, and then, of course, you can respond. What I, I mean, everyone's different, obviously, and that's the beauty of life, that every soul is unique. I can say honestly that I've come to a point where, let's say, certain external cultural features, like certain ways of dressing, certain kinds of music, and so on and so forth, don't say, like, what you find in temples don't so much remind me of Krishna as much as they remind me of India. Because, I mean, take music, for example, because we, you know, we're, people may be tired of hearing about clothes. So, um, of course, we are coming out with a Krishna-less fashion magazine. I'm just kidding. That was a joke. So, take music, for example, or musical style. Um, we don't really know what music sounded like when Krishna came. For the simple reason that, uh, unlike in the West, in the Indian <coughs> classical music tradition, they didn't write down the music. They didn't have like a you know, system of notation the way they did in the West. And also, the Indian classical tradition placed great emphasis on the power of improvisation. Also, there, that's the second thing. There's one third. There's a third factor, which is after the last thousand years, you could say, or eight, nine hundred years, whatever it is, uh, Indian classical music was dominated by Muslims. Because there were Muslim rulers who controlled patronage for artists, and therefore they favored them. So, and so the Indian classical music tradition for many, many centuries has really been something developed by Muslims. And so, I mean, I can understand and appreciate that some people are reminded of Krishna by certain things because Krishna appeared in India. And so the culture, you could say the external culture of Krishna consciousness in terms of visual arts, in terms of music, in terms of um, architecture, 
and dress and cuisine and all that comes to us from India in this Indian cultural package. And so by association, it's just like, for example, to give a simple example, I grew up in LA in actually really nice areas. I mean, nice in the sense there were lots of gardens and beautiful houses and parks and things like that. And, and so when I go back, as I do every several years, just for, you know, I kind of have a nostalgic side to me. So when I go back and walk in my old neighborhood in Chanjapa, you know, Chan Hare Krishna, I, it, it provokes all kinds of emotions. I mean, very strong emotions, which are basically, I mean, I think they're, it's healthy. They're very strong emotions because it was an innocent time for me. It was an innocent, happy time. And it, it, it almost helps me to get in touch with my, the innocent stage of my youth before I was, you know, corrupted by the later stage of my youth. And so, so again, if you walked in that neighborhood, you'd probably say, hey, it's nice. There's a lot of, you know, beautiful trees and gardens and all that. But it, it definitely would not arouse in you the same emotions it does in me. Just like I walk through, you, through your old neighborhood. I might say, oh, that's nice, but I wouldn't feel what you feel. So it's just a basic principle of human psychology that we associate powerful feelings and of course our most powerful feelings are for Krishna or for Prabhupada or, or you know for our own soul and so I know myself you know for probably most of my life those powerful spiritual emotions were tightly linked to certain external cultural features and so in that sense uh, so, so I understand what you're saying and so what kind of spoiled that nice little world for me was that Prabhupada gave me very heavy, explicit instructions about what he wanted, what his dream was, what his movement should be, especially in the Western world. And I now see that uh, what Prabhupada wanted and indeed what Prabhupada had manifested has basically collapsed. And so therefore, I found myself forced to put aside whatever and just really use whatever God-given intelligence I have to try to find a solution for Prabhupada. And for the world, because Prabhupada's a pure devotee, so his desires are pure benevolence. They're just what's best. For, what, what Prabhupada wants is what's best for the world, and that's why he wants it. Reminds me of Euthyphro, Socratic Dialogue where Socrates asked Euthyphro that brilliant question, are some actions good because the gods love those actions or do the gods love those actions because they are good? And so in this case, Prabhupada wanted certain things because they are good. And so therefore I have, I, I feel been forced by circumstances to study history, Vaishnava history, to look much more carefully at Shastra. What does Shastra really say about external culture? For the simple reason that all the sociology, all the history, and frankly, all the Shastra shows us that we must adapt to the culture we're in or it doesn't work. There's, there's like, it's, it's, well, to use kind of a funny sounding philosophical term, univocal. You, you know, like equivocal means different voices and univocal means one voice. So, so there's this unison this unison of Shastra, of Vaishnava history, of world history, the history of other religions, of Prabhupada's own statements, they all converge 
in this powerful message that you must adapt to the culture you're in. And not merely as bait and switch. Not merely because ultimately there must be a powerful Western mission. It's not just, okay, you know, here's, here's the bait, like, you know, a Western guard Hare Krishna movement, but once you, you know, bite the bait, we reel you in and Indianize you. <laughs> and, 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 and so I, I've been forced to look and say, well, what does Prabhupada really say? What does Rupa Goswami say? What does Shastra say? What did previous Acharyas do? And all the evidence seems to be that these external things, which understandably arouse in us spiritual emotions, ultimately are not intrinsically spiritual. It's just Indian culture. And the more I realized this, because my life, it was always that way. From the day I first um, actually you know, saw Prabhupada, I saw him in 1969 in the winter, actually around this time of year, um, oh my God, is that 48 years ago? Amazing, you know, I must have been like one year old. <laughs> Incredibly precocious. But anyway, in 1969, around this time of year, just this time of year, I was a student at Berkeley, and Prabhupada came to speak on campus. I attended, and he, to say he impressed me was to say little. I mean, and I was skeptical, because I'd seen other swamis, and I just, anyway. Prabhupada, was so impressive, so powerful, so authoritative that he just, you know, he changed my life. He changed my life. And so, um, so even before I joined the movement, I didn't even know what the movement was. I just knew it, this is it. And then when I bought a Bhagavad Gita and I began to read Prabhupada's Gita, it just, because I, you know, I was a so-called intellectual. Emphasis, you know, key word there, so-called. I was a so-called intellectual, and when I read the Beta Beta Tatva, that we're one with God and different from God, I literally, I was, you know, I was living in Beverly Hills, my family, I was lying on the couch, you know, reading the Bible, and I just shouted, Eureka! <laughs> I mean, I just knew this is it, because I'd been exposed to monism, it's all one, which is silly if you take it too far. And then I'd been, because even to say it, it is all one, it's four words and each word has several phonemes and you know, it, 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 it's a little silly. Or dualism where you know, we're so separated from God and when Prabhupada said one and different, I just knew this is the absolute truth. And I began preaching. I, I, I was preaching before I joined the movement. And then literally the first, I mean, I joined the movement and then I, you know, I slept that night in the temple for the first time. And then I woke up the next day and started organizing a guest reception program in the temple, this Berkeley temple. I mean, I don't even know the philosophy yet. I'd been in the movement less than 24 hours and I saw some guests coming and no one was talking to them. I said, we need a guest reception program. So I started organizing one, less than 24 hours after I joined the movement. And that has been my whole life. I used to at Sunday feast when I was 20 years old and we used to get guests in Berkeley, and I would literally stand in the door and not let people out until they bought a Bhagavad Gita. I mean, you know, it was done like in a joking, fun way. Everybody was having a good time. It wasn't like, you know, Mad Max, <laughs> you know, in a dhoti. But, um, so by Prabhupada's mercy, my whole life has been trying to spread Prabhupada's teachings. That's all that ever, you know, that's what I've lived for. And Prabhupada wrote me, the first time I wrote a letter to Prabhupada, 
Uh, I was a student at Berkeley. I was, well, I was supposed to be a senior, but I flunked several classes because I was distracted. That was 19, late 60s in Berkeley. It was very hard not to be distracted. Anyway, so I was, I guess, technically a junior, but I, I wrote a letter to Prabhupada and I asked him, um, should I stay in school and finish my education at Berkeley or should I just stay, you know, I was already in the temple, just go out on Sankirtan. Prabhupada wrote back, stay in school. He said, I want you to be nicely educated so that you can preach to similarly educated people. So that, just like Prabhupada, the first time he met his guru, his guru gave him instructions, became the purpose of his life. So the first direct instruction I received from Prabhupada became the purpose of my life. And so therefore, in order to carry out the order Prabhupada gave me, and in fact, for Prabhupada's movement to work, I have to present Krishna consciousness in a rational, intelligent way. No matter, you know, whatever my own sentiments may be, it has to make sense to intelligent people. And in fact, in Bhagavad Gita 1010, a famous verse where Krishna says, Te shang satata jukta nam bhajatam priti purvakam dadami buddhi yogantam jedamamu bhajantite to those who are always devoted and worshiping me with love. I give something by which they come to me. And what does Krishna give by which people come to Krishna? He gives rational intelligence. The exercise of rational intelligence. That's actually what he said. Buddhi yoga. And so um, that's my life. I mean, frankly, it's not my business how someone else dresses. I mean, I have a lot of better things to worry about than you know how you dress or someone else dresses. It's none of my business. I respect people's privacy. But the fact is, if we're gonna make this movement work, if we're gonna save this planet, we have to pay attention to history, to sociology, to Shastra, to Prabhupada. If we don't pay attention, it's not gonna work and it's not working. So, what I am imploring everyone, like you, and you're obviously a very intelligent young person, is um, to quote some of the more learned people in this country, let's get her done. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just have to, you know, we just have to do what we have to do to save this planet. It's, I mean, imagine, for example, there's a fire in a house, there's innocent people trapped, children, everything, and you get these firemen are arguing, well, no, I don't think that's the best hose to use. No, what about this hose? Well, no, you know, people are in the, we have to save this planet and it's just the way it is, like it or not. In the history of the world, no religion ever became successful trying to impose a foreign culture. It just doesn't work. The only way you can impose a foreign culture is two ways that you can actually bring in a new religion and get people to adopt a new external culture. What's that? Confidence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, one way is you just, you know, by brutality and coercion and all that. Not an option, obviously. <laughs> well, that must be a relief to you know that I'm not opting for that. So, the second, the second way is if the new culture, this is purely in sociological terms, this is not about what's ultimately valuable. It's just about perceptions. If a new tradition comes in a cultural package in which that 
other culture, that new culture is significantly more prestigious, has significantly more status than the indigenous culture. And so it, it's just, this is just the basic sociology of cultural transmission. To give an example, if you look at the spread of what scholars call Sanskritic culture, Vedic culture, Indian culture, Hinduism, to Southeast Asia before the Muslims kind of got there. Um, Singapore, I mean, Singapore is a Sanskrit word. Lion city, Singha, you know, Nursingha, Singhapura. Pur is just Greek polis. Singapore, Lion City. All the, I mean, Sumatra, the biggest island in Indonesia. Sumatra in Sanskrit means very large size. That's what it means. That's the biggest island in Indonesia. The island of Bali, named after Bali Maharaj. The fact that the national airlines of Indonesia is Garuda Airlines. The fact that Jakarta is actually an abbreviation of a Sanskrit term, Jayakarta, the victory maker. And the fact that the ancient name of Thailand is Siam. Shama, you know, name of Krishna. And you can go on and on and on. So, so this occurred actually approximately 2,000 years ago, you know, 1,800 years ago. So how did this Indian or say Vaishnav culture flow to Southeast Asia? It was, it was done by soft power, as, as you know, political science says. It wasn't done by military conquest. People were attracted because India had a much more culturally advanced civilization in terms of literature. You know, music, philosophy, everything. It was, it was a very advanced culture. And people in Southeast Asia wanted this, you know, this status, the, the, this prestige culture. I mean, for example, if you look at the Central Asian invasion of India in, let's say, between maybe 100, 200 years before Jesus and then a century or two afterwards, they're called the Kushans. They were these Central Asian invaders who from you'll love this one, numismatic evidence, which means coins. It appears that they actually you know, established an empire in India and they adopted Krishna, they adopted Vedic culture. So much so that when the Muslims were ruling a lot of India, the most powerful resistance to the Muslim rule in terms of in favor of the Vedic culture came from the Rajputs in Rajasthan. And these, you know, big warriors in Rajasthan who actually were the, you know, the greatest defenders of Hinduism, they had been invaders. They actually came into India uh, as invaders, but they recognized a superior culture and adopted it. In fact, in Prabhupada's Chaitanya Charitamrita, for all these events in the CC, he gives the date on the, you know, on, on the Western calendar, like it was in this year, and then the Shakabda, he gives the date in a different calendar system, the Shakabda. What is Shakabda? Abda means year, Shaka, was the Indian name for the Scythians. Again, Central Asian invaders, who the Indians called Shakas, they're Scythians. And so their calendar, the Central Asian calendar, is what's used in the Chaitanya Charitamrita to give the indigenous dates for Chaitanya Lila. So if you look at the real history, it's, I mean, I go on and on and on and on. We'll all starve to death. So, so that's what that's my duty to Prabhupada. I have to do this for Prabhupada, even though I understand and you know what you said. Hare Krishna. What's your name? Raven. Raven. I have a response, but I don't know if I should do it now because so many other people are here. There you go. Try your luck. Okay. So. 
Yeah, I never thought about that before. You know, you mentioning the socialization of just moving the Vedic culture across different cultures. I, I've been, I, I'm really interested in the period in which Lord Chaitanya appeared historically because it's, I think it's directly connected to our, our current turmoil right now. That, and that's why he appeared in America with, with uh, the, because I was a political major and I went to Oberlin College and Oberlin. On, yeah. Good school. Yes, thank you. So I focused a lot on, on history. And so I like that you brought up the soft invasion. Soft power. Soft yeah. power invasion. So when I think of Western culture into which we're trying to assimilate now, what are the positive things about Western culture? Well, through my knowledge of Western culture and where it comes from, it all came from the Vedas, the good parts about it. Can we talk about that? Yeah. Okay, I mean, I'm not just going to go on for 20 minutes now, but I want to have a conversation with you because there's certain points I want to respond to before I forget them. First of all, look at the external culture, if we can use that term. Not like, you know, bhakti yoga, but just the external culture, dress, cuisine, architecture, music style and everything. At the time of Lord Chaitanya. What the Bhagavatam actually tells us is that when Krishna comes to this world, he comes, and this is quoting the Bhagavatam, nato natya dharojata, like an actor in costume. So we cannot look at the culture, Hare Krishna. <laughs> we cannot look at the culture that Lord Chaitanya appeared in and take it to be anything like Vedic or eternal culture. I'll give you some examples. Um, when Lord Chaitanya appeared, he would, he would only take his meals in the homes of Brahmins. Why? Is that Vedic culture? No. It was just a social prejudice at the time. When Krishna appeared, I mean, same guy, but when Krishna appeared 5,000 years ago, he took all his meals in the home and just showed uh, Ananda. I mean, they were his parents, you know, foster parents who were vices. But because he appeared in that culture, he adopted to it. Why did he dress a certain way? As a sannyasi, eternal Vedic culture? No, just the custom of the time. So, for example, Lord Chaitanya told Sanatana Goswami, you know, you've got to get rid of your, you know, Gucci chowder, because he had this really <laughs> expensive chowder. And yet when Prabhupada came, Prabhupada did exactly the opposite of Lord Chaitanya, externally. Internally, he did exactly the same thing. Prabhupada dressed in very, you know, in silk, and nice charters, you know, someone gave him a Rolex watch and he, wore, and he wore it. Why? Because especially in India at that time, the culture had flipped. 500 years ago, you say you're a sannyasi, I better see your austerity. You know, how come you're not wearing rags if you're a saint? But now in India, they worship wealth and they worship, you know, material progress. You know, this whole post-colonial thing that's going on. So therefore, Prabhupada adopted. Lord Chaitanya had his six Goswamis, who he Prabhupada personally told me the ideal sannyasis, they were dressed in rags. Prabhupada wore silk. Why? They're both pure devotees. They're do both doing what it takes. So in fact, you cannot look at how Krishna, either Krishna 5,000 years ago, or we have very little 
explicit information, by the way. We know, for example, that when Krishna appeared, women didn't wear saris. We know that because the Bhagavatam says that they wore belts. You don't wear a belt with a sari. And the Bhagavatam says they had upper cloth and lower cloth. That's not a sari. The word dhoti is not a Sanskrit word. It doesn't appear in the Bhagavatam. So, um, and the Bhagavatam says, Krishna comes like an actor in costume. Krishna adapts to the world he comes to in many ways, in many ways. For example, Lord Chaitanya took sannyas from an impersonal sampradaya. Why? That was the accredited sannyas degree. Why did I go to Harvard? Uh, because that was the accredited degree. You know, I thought, okay, you know, make hay while the sun shines. You know, if, 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 if I go there, people may take me seriously when I talk. So I did my graduate work there. So because there's, you can say, well, why don't you go to a Vaishnav university? Because there are none that are credited. Lord Chaitanya actually recreated Vaishnav sannyas. When he took sannyas, it didn't exist. And he recreated it through the Sixth Goswami. So we can go right down the list and I can show you all kinds of things that Lord Chaitanya did, his pure devotees did, not because it's eternal Vedic culture, but it's because that's what the world was doing. And so it's very interesting. It's ironic that, that devotees tend to take these adaptations, these cultural adaptations, where Krishna himself or his devotees are just doing what everybody else is doing. And then we look at it and say, oh, that's eternal Vaishnava culture. No, it's not. It's an adaptation to the world they lived in. And I think before you came in, I gave like loads of examples that I mercifully won't repeat, but showing even intellectually, linguistically, literarily. I can give you so many examples of how Lord Chaitanya's most intimate associates wrote books adapting precisely the literary conventions, the type of Sanskrit, the literary genres, all kinds of things which were popular back then. And why did they do it? Because they had to fit in. And so the history of Vaishnavism is not the history of transmitting an eternal, unchanging, timeless, external culture. It's exactly the opposite. The history of Vaishnavism is the history of adaptation of preserving the essence, the essence you preserve, you know, chanting Krishna's names, offering our food to Krishna, reading the Bhagavatam, associating with devotees, all that is totally non-negotiable. That's eternal. But what Prabhupada called a dead thing, that's what he called dress, a dead thing. He said, we don't care about, so, you know, the ultra conservative Prabhupada who basically risked his life in the Jaladuta to get people to wear Indian clothes. You know, that's not the real Prabhupada. I can send you my papers, you're smart. I'll send you my papers, your pages of Prabhupada quotes showing that the ultra-conservative Prabhupada actually doesn't really exist. Prabhupada is actually very, but it's just that there, there's this whole body of Prabhupada's very liberal, adaptive statements, which basically have just been filtered out of ISKCON discourse. And so I'm bringing them back because it's the liberal Prabhupada who gives us the agility, the flexibility we need to make this movement work. So it's a history of adaptation. Me and the liberal Prabhupada are best friends. What's that? Me and the liberal Prabhupada are best friends. <laughs> if I didn't have a liberal Prabhupada for the past five years, I'd still be here, but maybe a little bit more quiet 
<laughs> and so I was thinking that when Lord Chaitanya appeared, the most relevant to history right now was civil disobedience. And in the context of American culture, I was trained in civil disobedience. And to be simply disobedient in the proper way is to go against that dominant form of culture that is where we're talking about dress. It's connected to a form of extraction of resources from the earth, which is against our philosophy of Vaishnavas. Yes, yes. And so that, I think the understanding what freedom means in the context to different, means different things to people in the West, freedom. Some people think freedom is voting for Trump. <laughs> so they, they think that's freedom. Others like myself, I think freedom is, you know, where you can express yourself freely and do whatever you like. So I guess that's the conundrum is how to present. Okay, I, good point. Because I've actually thought a lot about civil disobedience. When I was at Harvard, actually, one year when I was at Harvard, I lived outside Cambridge, and I, was, I literally used to walk over to Walden Pond, where Henry David Thoreau... Uh, I, just, I just tutored a student in that and gave him a lecture on... Hey, high five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I used, I, used to, I, used to take a, I used to take Joppa walks over to Walden Pond. So, okay, ironically, Ironically, what I'm doing right now, well, I mean, what I'm doing with Krishna West, my barnstorming deviation, what I'm doing with Krishna West is, in a sense, civil disobedience within ISKCON. So, and, and, and very consciously so, and, and I reached a cons conscious decision that I'm absolutely convinced that Prabhupada needs us to do this. I mean, it's really, it's like life or death for this movement. We need to do this. And therefore, if it came to that, unfortunately it didn't, but I was prepared to do that, civil disobedience. I even researched civil disobedience and because I wanted to situate myself within a, you know, a valid, justifiable tradition. And so, you know, you, know, you and I are just like, you know, we're in like Flynn because the point is that, the whole, I mean, the whole point of Krishna West is we have to be activists. We have to go out and change the world. Why am I doing all this? I mean, I don't think that polo shirts and khakis are spiritual. I mean, if you use them for Krishna, they are. But the whole point is, I want to change the world. I want ISKCON to be an activist movement, not just this sedate, apathetic society that just you know wants to do rituals in the temple room and 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 have nice prasadam and you know we visit each other's homes and you know get out our harmoniums. I mean, right now, you know, the biggest ISKCON festivals are not even open to the public. They're like, you know, these sadhu sangha retreats, 72-hour kirtans, 96 hours, 120, you know, whatever they get to. It's almost like, you know, flagpole sitting, like how long can you go? So I'm trying to revive the real Prabhupada Hare Krishna movement, where we were activists. We were out there. We wanted to change the world. We would do whatever it takes. And that includes social justice, economic justice. I am keenly aware that America basically has become a plutocracy, you know, ruled by the rich. You know, just like you. I mean, both of us are keenly aware of the degradation of this country. And so, yeah, I want to, I'm an activist. I. I grew up, you know, in Berkeley. I mean, I was, I was in Berkeley in the late 60s. I was on the streets. 
And actually, I can show you, I send you a picture. My brother and I, my older brother was also a student at Berkeley, and we were on the front page of the Oakland Tribune in this, you know, radical riot. And so I, that's where I'm coming from. Berkeley, late 60s, Prabhupada, changed the world. And so whatever I'm doing, it's just because it works. It's because it works. It's not that I have a fetish for Western clothes. <laughs> it just works. So, you're, you're a great Krishna West material. <laughs> it was great to talk to you. You're, uh, it, it, frankly, it's young, intelligent people like you that are the real hope for this movement. Uh, thanks. Anything else? Next uh, contestant. <laughs> oh. Um, it seems like, you know, time's kind of cycling around because back in. Oh, the mic. Well, well, actually, this girl has. A, I'm sorry. Oh, you have the microphone. Well, well, okay. No, but you can go next. Yeah, yeah, she has a microphone. So why don't you go ahead and then we'll, because that way other people who are not in the room can hear. So, okay, go ahead. Um, so you said that Krishna, whatever you're doing in Krishna, well, not for me, no. It, it works for the public. I mean, wherever we do it, I get, I mean, I don't want to interrupt you, but just let me throw in some data here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but I was, I was under a different understanding that it was more or less just the devotees who, Joined and like felt more inclined towards that way, doing Christian consciousness that way, more or less like you said, you don't change the philosophy at all. Right, right. The same, but just the way that you present yourself is a bit different than you know, strict standards and everything. But what if? Oh my God. So then there's devotees who more or less, more or less go towards that, like the super, super strict Indian culture um, way of thinking. Okay, we. Oh God, we need to talk. Okay, I'm, I'm going to respond to what you said. But thank you, because you really, um, you brought, put on the table some really important issues, so thank you. First of all, um, if it were just like, I like Western clothes, so I'm dedicating my life to fight for the right for me to wear Western clothes, I would be a little silly, I think. I mean, I, would, I think I would be a very silly person. What I'm trying to do is say, is help Prabhupada save the planet. And so it's just, again, all of social science, history, practical results, like right now as we're speaking, is that this works. Not to amuse myself. You know, it's sort of, it's, I mean, it would be frivolous if I was doing this just because I like to wear these clothes. It'd be frivolous and silly. Rather, I'm trying to fulfill Prabhupada's desires to save the planet. And we, I believe, based on all the available evidence, that that's not possible unless we start adapting ourselves. You know, we're gonna go out like the woolly mammoth. I mean, I mean, we know that the traditional approach just doesn't work. It hasn't worked for 40 years. And these are real numbers. Even when Prabhupada was here, if you look at the statistics, which we still have, of how many people Prabhupada initiated, what we find is, from around, say, 71, 72 to 75, there's this explosive growth of ISKCON in the Western world. It started to taper off, actually around 74. 74, 75, it starts, you know, the, the, the rate of growth starts to lessen. And then by 76, it's starting to slow decline, which then accelerated and just, you know, became a, a steep decline. 
until now the situation, basically we're looking at the remnants, the remnants of a powerful Western Hare Krishna movement. And so it just, it's just the way it is. Social science, history, Shastra, Prabhupada's own statements. We need to do this. As far as saying, you know, not, you know, relaxing the standards, in a sense that's circular reasoning. Because first of all, someone has to prove that that is the standard to do. Here's a direct quote from Prabhupada, a direct quote from Prabhupada that you can find in the Veda base where devotee asked Prabhupada, I think it was 1975, that why do we have to wear these Indian clothes? Prabhupada said, I never said you had to, you wanted to do it. That's a direct quote from Prabhupada. I was with Prabhupada in Honolulu, where one of the sannyasis, Sudama Swami, who actually went to my high school, and he was also actually the best actor that ever joined Discom. but anyway, I mean, he was in, when I was in high school, when I was, at, when I was in the 10th grade at Hamilton High School, I had a Shakespeare class, you know, for an English requirement, and they took us to the L.A. City Shakespeare competition. You know, L.A. is a lot of actors in L.A., and so, and he won every category, and this guy was brilliant. And so, um, he was president of Hawaii, he left, and, and, and so Prabhupada came there, and I was there, and Prabhupada was talking to me and talking to us and saying, like, why did he leave? Because Prabhupada, you know, really loved him. He loved his spiritual children. And so someone said, well, you know, he didn't want to wear Indian clothes. And I was right there. I mean, I mean, I was this close to Prabhupada. Prabhupada said, I never said you have to wear Indian clothes. Just dress like a gentleman. It's just like Prabhupada said in 1967 in, in you know, the big Kirtananda controversy. He said, I don't want you with long hair and beard. Why? He said, it's not against the rules, but the public will think we're hippies. So Prabhupada said, I mean, he said it to me. You don't have to wear Indian clothes, just dress like a gentleman. So the idea that you are, a, you are stricter as a devotee, you know, you're, you're a better devotee, you're a first-class devotee if you immerse yourself in Indian traditions, half of which come from the Muslims, by the way. Um, no, not at all. Again, a direct quote from Prabhupada is that I don't care how you dress, dress is a dead thing. Dress is a dead thing, we are interested in consciousness. So it's not about, you know, you're dressed like this, or I'm dressed another way, who's a better devotee? That's absurd. Who loves Krishna? I may have some big position, sannyasi, guru, whatever. But right now, if you love Krishna more, you're a better devotee, it doesn't matter who's dressed. I'll give you a story like that. This is a real story with Prabhupada. In 1972, I flew out to New York to see Prabhupada. I had this traveling party, a few brahmacharis, we were going to American universities, and so I was in Eugene, Oregon, at the University of Oregon, and uh, actually Corvallis, I think, Corvallis, Oregon. And um, we heard Prabhupada's coming to LA. So, you know, we were young and passionate, I was 23. He's gotten our van, packed up, we just drove from Oregon down to LA, which is, you know, only a crazy young person would do that. So then it turned out Prabhupada's not coming to LA, he went to New York instead. <laughs> So we got on a plane and went to New York. So when I walked into Prabhupada's room the next morning, he was just finishing breakfast. Prabhupada was really jovial. He would joke a lot. He was like, you know, apart from being a pure devotee, he's really a great guy. And uh, he was funny. He was just really a great guy. And um, he wasn't this mythological figure. So I walked into his room. He just finished a good breakfast. And, and he said to me, he's like this mock seriousness. He said, oh, Vidayananda Goswami. 
He really liked, he really liked my program, like going to the colleges. He said, you are traveling and preaching. I just sit here and eat. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, you know, so then we talked for a while and he wanted to know about my program. And Prabhupada was so pleased with my program that I did what any sincere young devotee would do. I became puffed up. <laughs> and so, so I decided I would go back that afternoon and get more praise from Prabhupada. Like, hey, this is great. Feels good. So I went back that afternoon. I sat in front of Prabhupada. And of course, he could detect instantly my pride. And so at that time, there was a young girl in Prabhupada's room cleaning, like dusting and cleaning his room. Now, in terms of the ISKCON pecking order, um, you know, I was this big sannyasi, and she was just some young girl. I mean, she had no position in ISKCON. And yet at that moment, she was actually much more devoted than me. At that moment, she was cleaning Prabhupada's room with real love. And so Prabhupada began to talk to her. I mean, with so much love. You want to know how Prabhupada treated women? He talked to her with just this tremendous affection, just almost like a loving grandfather or something, just with real love. Like, what's your name, you know, and how old are you? And thank you so much. He was just so affectionate and so kind. And so I was sat there waiting to be noticed, which I wasn't. And I understood. I actually understood immediately what was going on. At that time, I was a big sannyasi and, you know, in a male body, which is a big thing in this country. You know, I was, uh, there's nothing more spiritual in this world than a male body. So, but at that moment, that young girl was the one who really was devoted. And therefore, Prabhupada just gave her all his attention because she was really Krishna conscious. And it was a lesson I never forgot. So it, it, another thing about Krishna West, if I could say this, Krishna West uh, means that it doesn't matter what kind of body you have. I mean, it's not this thing that, okay, you're not your body, but you are your clothes. Or, you know, you're not your body, but women are their body. You know, it's, it's none of this stuff. And, and I'm very happy to say that at least half of the leaders of Krishna West are women. At least half of the leaders of Krishna West are women. Why? Because of a very aggressive affirmative action program? No, because they're qualified. And so, and so the intelligent, talented women of ISKCON are probably the greatest untapped resource in this movement. There's like almost an unlimited amount of ability, intelligence, and spiritual power, which is being unleashed, frankly, through Krishna West by giving everyone this opportunity. So that's another way, that's another way to me of being rational. So again, I, I have to admit when I was like 12 or 13 years old, I was really into my clothes. And I mean, those days we were crazy. I could wear like a red shirt and red socks, you know, I mean, that was 1960. So, but at this point in my life, no, I don't, you know, to me, it's not about clothes and, and, and it's none of my business to tell you how to dress or anyone else how to dress. I just want to make this movement work. And therefore I'm appealing to people who care more about saving the world than their own comfort and convenience and, you know, stylistic preferences, who care more about saving the world to just help us. And um, yes. one thing I definitely agree with you 
like the big festivals that we have nowadays, like Zanu Sangha and different different hour kirtans and stuff, that those are exclusively like it is kind of devoted thing. And I mean for me nowadays I don't even I mean I feel like depending on which side of the country they're on, they're not only catered to only devotees, but they're only catered to devotees, certain devotees that live in that area, or certain devotees that run in the same groups or the temples that are closest together. But I just got the impression that you were saying that we should use that more as preaching, more for preaching rather than just devotees getting together to just see each other again. Prabhupada was all about saving this planet. For example, I was married in 1971, actually in January, everything happens in January. In 1971, I was married in Boston. Prabhupada had sent me there to work on his books to actually a wonderful Vaishnavi. And um, it was a preaching opportunity. So my art picture, being married, was on the front page of the Boston Globe. That was the original spotlight. Oh, you know that movie? So, um, <laughs> So, you know, Prabhupada, when we were with Prabhupada and we were just, and Prabhupada was everything for us, and of course he still should be, everything was about saving the planet. You chant your japa very carefully. Why? Because you need to get spiritual power to go out and help people. Everything we did, everything we did was the mission. I spent lots of time with Prabhupada. And not, you know, just in New York, Swamiji, I'm from the West Coast, so I came a little later. But, you know, whether Prabhupada was walking or, or, or eating or preaching or, you know, going over bank accounts, everything was a mission. He never forgot for a second that he was Krishna's servant, and he never forgot for a second that what Krishna wants more than anything is to save his children fallen souls. And Prabhupada never forgot it for a second. I had one experience which really, um, I mean, shocked me at the time with Prabhupada. We were in Pittsburgh, it was 1972, and Prabhupada had been in New Vrindavan for the Bhagavad Dharma Discourses, which were famous. And, um, and then we went to Pittsburgh for a program. And so we were, in, they had a beautiful temple in Pittsburgh then. And so we were all sitting in the room with Prabhupada, the Darshan room. I mean, his room, and um, I was sitting right next to Prabhupada. I always managed to, you know, get next to Prabhupada. And so he was going over banking business because he had to, because he was using the money to save people, to build temples, to print books. And so he had a bunch of checks on his desk and he was talking to some of the managers. They were just talking about banking to business. And yet I saw that while Prabhupada was talking about banking, there were tears coming from his eyes. There were tears of ecstasy because he was feeling love of Krishna and separations from Krishna. He was doing the banking business and there were tears coming from his eyes, which I noticed just goes right next to him. And then actually it was a very powerful experience. And then, you know, okay, Darshan's over, everybody go to bed. And so everybody got up to leave. And so I, would, I sort of pretended I was leaving, but just stayed there because I wanted to stay with Prabhupada. So I was the last one in the room with Prabhupada and then I closed, I was one that closed the door of Prabhupada's room, the last one out. And I looked through the door and when Prabhupada thought he was alone, someone had put a peacock feather on his desk and he 
picked up this peacock feather and just kind of like, you know, he wasn't self-flagellating, it wasn't a whip, like some kind of monastic. But he was a peacock feather, and you could just see, he was just in, in deep, deep ecstasy, feeling separation from Krishna. And so, that's Prabhupada. But to Prabhupada, love of Krishna meant love of all of Krishna's children. It meant saving the world. Prabhupada gave his life. I mean, the doctors kept telling him, you can't do this, you can't travel this much, you can't lecture this much, you can't preach this much. I was Prabhupada's secretary in 76. He was already having health problems. The doctor came in and said, you, ha you can't preach like this, you have to rest. So Prabhupada agreed, and the moratorium on preaching lasted exactly one hour. <laughs> and then he was preaching again. So Prabhupada consciously gave his life. He consciously sacrificed his, sacrificed his life to save the planet. And so, yes, if you know anything about Prabhupada, you know that life is meant to spread this movement. Prabhupada said, Progress means to increase the family members. So temples, frankly, where it's all about ritual and puja and abhisheka and devotee-only kirtan festivals, I'm gonna go with Prabhupada. I mean, obviously we do puja. Prabhupada installed deities. Prabhupada trained the pujaris. But he made very clear we do puja in order to encourage the preachers, the temples exist for preaching. That's why they exist. And in order, because, but when you go out to preach, you know, you're the teacher. You tell people what to do, like practice bhakti yoga. You tell them what's true and not true. And so when you go out to preach, you're the authority. Therefore, you come back to the temple, you bow down to the Lord, and you realize, ultimately, I am the worshiper. I am the servant. So deity worship, you know, when you're out on the street, you can't always keep yourself clean because you're out there. So you come back to, the, you know, you, you, you shower, you put on clean clothes, you go into the temple, you bow down to the Lord and you remember that I'm a tiny servant, even though I just spent the day telling everybody what's right and wrong. But actually I'm a tiny servant. That's what deity worship was for. It was simply to help the preachers but the temples exist for preaching. I mean, there's a simple fact that India as a culture, Hinduism as a culture, we should really say Hinduism, it is practically like an iron law of Hinduism that you don't preach. There was some kind of Hindu rule that you, for example, you don't cross the ocean, you don't associate with people outside our culture. And so the idea, and I'm not, I mean, we have many people from Indian background in Iskon who are great souls, who are really good devotees. But in general, the Hindu culture means you do not preach. It's for the club. You know, it, it's for, that's why in Jagannath Puri, if you haven't got a, you know, if you're not racially Indian, you can't go into the temple. That's why even in Iskon, there are many Indian families who would be absolutely mortified mortified if their children married in non-India. So, as I said, there are many great souls in ISKCON from an Indian background. 
However, the general culture that surrounds that civilization is that you don't preach. Actually, when I was in charge of GBC of Atlanta, we had uh, some devotees, uh, not devotees, some guests visiting who, who wrote a, an academic paper. They were, you know, a master's student wrote an academic paper studying our Atlanta congregation, the Indian and Western congregation. They found that the Indians are generally tend to be more successful materially, but are not that interested in preaching. And so when we have these, I mean, we have, this is real world talk, you know? If we can't speak the truth, then this is real world stuff. We need to establish a powerful Western, reestablish, restore a powerful Western preaching mission. That was Prabhupada's legacy. That was our inheritance. We have squandered that inheritance. Prabhupada left us a powerful Western mission. And where is it? So personally, before I leave this world, I want to restore to Prabhupada what he gave us. So that's what this is all about. Like I said, I really respect other people's privacy. It's none of my business what people eat, how they dress, what kind of music they like. It's none of my business. But what is my business is to try to help organize a Western Hare Krishna movement that will work, that will actually work and actually accomplish Prabhupada's purpose. So, you're smart, you get it. So, last question maybe, and then uh, you, you'll, you can finally uh, escape. Yes? Uh, well, the Krishna West movement seems to be kind of circling back to when Bhakti Siddhanta Swami Maharaj first went to Paris wearing a tuxedo and top hat and a Rolls Royce, preaching to gentlemanly people in France as opposed to Paris. And he also encouraged some of his other disciples to go to like England and places and preach and try to preach to different uh, cultures. And, and it seemed like he was uh, adapting to the culture to try to get the message out to yes. other countries and try to spread the movement of, uh, of Bhakti Yoga, I guess you want to call it. So, uh, it, and there, there was a lot of opposition from the Gaudiya Math, different, you know, there's always... Well, well he started the Gaudiya Math. Prabhupada had opposition from the Gaudiya Yeah. Bhakti yeah. created the Gaudiya He created the Gaudiya right. so, Also, I, I don't think he personally went to France, but I may go over. But he did receive French or European people, and he did do all those things you said. But that's when you, you seem to have the... Can, uh, you, you gain a certain amount of acceptance when you conform to the... The, the church here, you know, like the, the, the temple that you're at, you gain a certain amount of acceptance by adapting the dress and wearing pilak and going to the temple and dressing properly and worshiping the deity this way. Um, it, it, and it, it seems to, you know, be very festive on occasions, you know, when everyone's dressed up, yeah. like not advancing in your time. And Glorifying Krishna. So ultimately, it's good to try to, you know, uh, make devotees so they can all come and 
participate like this. I have exactly the opposite idea. But I, 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 I mean, if I can say, I, I have a very different idea. I think that we should make devotees not so that we can induct them into Indian culture, because, because then we remain irrelevant in general society. You know, the general public, they're not, they're not stupid. We, some, we may think they are, but they're not. And so it's like, why did the chicken cross the road? You know, we know that one, to get to the other side. So I say, you know, why did the non-devotee cross the bridge? Because we have bridge programs. So people look what's on the other side of the bridge. People cross bridges because they want to go to the other side. So when people see, you know, people aren't that stupid. And so we can have these outreach programs that people think, okay, if I really join this, where do I go? What happens to me? And they look and they see, well, if I join ISKCON and I want to be like a really respected first-class citizen, not a second-class member of ISKCON, it means I've got to dody up. I've got to be Indianized. And what we're finding is that very few people want to cross that bridge. So it's festive, it's colorful, fine. But really, there's only one question in my mind. Does it work? How many people, I mean, you can have, you know, they have Renaissance fairs, they have Jane Austen festivals. I'm a big Jane Austen fan. You know, you know, there's all kinds of festivals. People dress up in period, you know, whether it's the English Regency or medieval or Renaissance and so on and so forth. So yes, it's festive and colorful. But ultimately, what I want to see is what will fulfill Prabhupada's desires, what will save this planet, what will make this movement powerful. And we've tried for 40 years a certain way, and it just, it doesn't work. Well, what was uh, also what I wanted to say was, um, like what Bhakti Sananda Goswami Maharaj was doing, he's trying different ways to preach, trying different things, you know, seeing what will work. And I guess that's what Krishna consciousness is about. But you, like with the Gaudiya Moth and everything, you're, you're going to get some criticism. Oh, will get this? Yeah, I mean, that's... Yeah, so that's what happens. But that's irrelevant. If I put my own pride or feelings above Prabhupada's needs, then I'm an unworthy servant of Prabhupada. If the whole world criticizes me, but I please Prabhupada, I'll be very happy. If I can please Prabhupada and Krishna, it doesn't matter if the whole world despises me. I did my duty, and I can leave this world in peace. Well, I think it's a good idea to try something. Thank you. It's like the civil disobedience. <laughs> You're yeah. being disobedient by preaching your own mission. Well, it's it. actually approved by ISKCON. I mean, to the credit of ISKCON leaders, they recognize this is a bona fide ISKCON project. So, anyway, thank you all very much. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. <laughs> Whoa, that was, we went on for a while. you? Some time ago when I was thinking, I was thinking about um, Krishna West. In the beginning, in the beginning I didn't like it. I was little, um, because I, you know, I thought that everything was about my clothes. And, and I don't know, because 
you know, uh, after 20 years in ISCON, uh, yes, we have many, many rules, you know, we, we are following many rules and many things that senior devotees teach us. Um, so in the beginning, I liked it. I start watching your videos um, because I was thinking, well, maybe I, I don't have the whole information, you know, maybe uh, something else. So I started liking a little more. <laughs> and then I started thinking, well, maybe people don't come to the temples here in America because we did many mistakes and we did many wrong things. And the public knows that, you know, the people know that. Honestamente, ¿de dónde eres? Uruguay. Ah, Uruguay. Sí. Qué bien, después platicamos. Um, first of all, if we think that the public remembers all these bad things we did, actually the truth is even worse than that. The public doesn't even remember who we are practically. I mean, anyone that's under a certain age, which is unfortunately getting higher and higher, they don't even know who we are. So if, if you take it as still basically true, as Prabhupada said, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. He said that in Gainesville. And therefore, you know, we're more likely to persuade people who are younger to make, to adopt something very new. And people under 40 years old, they hardly know anything about us. They've hardly heard of us. A disciple of mine was giving, speaking in a class at Florida State University, religion class. And so he said, okay, how many people here have heard of the Hare Krishna movement? And this is in Tallahassee, Florida State, where he actually had a prashadam program. How many people here have heard of the Hare Krishna movement? No one raised their hand. And as far as college students, hurry, what? <laughs> so, yeah, so we need to rebuild a powerful Western Hare Krishna movement. And if we don't, uh, it does not look good for this movement going into the future. You know, any historian that knows anything about the history of religions will tell you you guys are headed for a train wreck. So we need to open our eyes, start thinking, you know, like wind ourselves up again, get our brains working, and start thinking about what's really going on, what the real situation is, do the math of how this movement's doing in the West, look at the numbers, and any, I think, rational human being would conclude uh, there's a serious problem here. And it's not just because of the past, because most people don't even know about that or anything about us. So what I always say is, if you have a better idea, I'll join you. You know, I'd say my, the, the, the two most important principles for me in Krishna consciousness, number one, love Krishna, and number two, lazy intelligence. That's what Prabhupada said, you know, it's good other people do everything. So I love, I mean, if you can, if anyone, if anyone on earth has a better idea than Krishna West, I will ecstatically defer to you.
I will, you know, you do it. I'll tell everybody I know to work with you. If you've got a better idea and you can show it's a better idea, nothing can make me happier. I just don't see it. So it's like, it's like, you know, it's like someone's drowning in the ocean. Some, a boat comes, throws the person, you know, a, 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 what do they call it? A lifesaver, a rope. And the person says, you know, I don't think I like that lifesaver. I'm going to wait for the next one. What next one? You're drowning. It just, it works. It works, you know, we're just seeing all over the world, it just works. And, and you know, if you treat people nicely, if you respect them, if you present Krishna consciousness intelligently, appropriately, and you don't, you don't uh, put people off by being very exotic. Some people like exotic stuff. Some people are into looking very exotic in public and all that. You know, they like it. And, you know, so be it. Everyone has their own way. But most people are not like that. And so maybe we're like pre-selecting exotic people. <laughs> you have to understand that, that when you present Krishna consciousness in a certain way, you don't just get the public. You get a certain type of people with certain psychology based on the way you present yourself. Prabhupada, I mean, look, I mean, remember, ISKCON is plan B. If you look at Prabhupada in India before he ever came and when he came, when he was alone in New York, he was writing letters to world leaders, the heads of you know, great foundations like the Ford Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation. Prabhupada envisioned this movement as attracting the leaders of the world, leading citizens who would create a Krishna conscious society. That didn't work. No one responded. And then these young people started coming. So, okay, let's go that way. But from the very beginning, Prabhupada wanted that. Prabhupada, he wrote me so many times, he wrote so many letters, so many devotees, preaching the colleges, we want educated people, we want intelligent people, we want the leaders. You know, the, you know, the Prabhupada that some people want to keep in the center is hardly recognizable to me. Unfortunately, I'm the last active preacher in ISKCON trained by Prabhupada as a Western GVC. And I know exactly what Prabhupada said. Prabhupada somehow confided in me. You know, when I went to be his secretary in 1976, just before the Mayapur festival, uh, he never even asked me to do any secretarial duty. I didn't type one letter. He just, he wanted to talk to me. He wanted to tell me things. He did send me running down the corridors of his building, chasing people down when he left his room without prasadam. He really wanted everyone to get some prasadam. So he'd have his room full of guests and then someone would kind of sneak out the door and probably see me. I mean, many times I'd go running, you know, racing down the corridors. Here, probably wants you to have this. So, but, be, but besides that service, I will tell you one funny story. I don't think anyone knows this story. Prabhupada is trying to encourage people. So in Bengal, they have all these like emotional kirtan leaders that, you know, do it for money. So Prabhupada was trying to convince one of the leaders of the you know, Kirtan groups in, in West Bengal to join ISKCON. So he told him, if you join, he said, we have our golden avatar recording studios. So if you join ISKCON, we will, you know, we will, we will produce your music. So then Prabhupada said to me, get a tape recorder, produce his music. So then, you know, I, I ran, got a tape recorder, and then, and then Prabhupada said, okay, now chance. So he let him chant for a few minutes, okay, and then let him go. 
Of course, he never asked me for the tape or never asked me to. Just <laughs> to impress this this village leader. So anyway, um, you know the truth is what works. Prabhupada just wants to get the job done. Anyone that thinks that Prabhupada cared more about trivial, superficial things like you know your dress style, what whether you know exactly how you cook. I mean, within we have our principles. That he cared more about that than saving the world really knows very little about Prabhupada. So, any other point? If not, uh, yes. Well, I, I agree with you, largely, but I'm, I'm just trying to be very uh, if, if you're trying to, to bring God consciousness to someone who's not exposed to Hindu philosophy or Krishna right. at all, right. And then you say to this person that God is this person who wears a dhoti and a peacock feather. And, I mean, do you start there or do you first, you, you go slower and you say first improve your consciousness, the quality of your life, and then... Right, right. First of all, I have to say the word dhoti is not a Sanskrit word. It's not in any Shastra. It's... Anyway, it's an Indian tradition that Christian wears a dhoti. There's no scriptural evidence of that. I just want to throw that out. As far as where you start, it, it, where you start it, it Prabhupada said discrimination is realization. If you're a realized preacher, now, let's say you speak to a Western person that loves art, that loves, you know, the exotic art of India, then you say, oh, Krishna is blue, he's beautiful. That may be what convinces a person. I mean, it depends on who you're talking to. For most people, if someone, first of all, Prabhupada said, if they don't even know they're not the body, if they don't even know that there are spiritual bodies, then what are you going to talk about? So we start with basics. That's why Krishna, look what Krishna does. When Krishna reveals his form to Arjuna, that's at the end of chapter 11. That's toward the end of Bhagavad. That's almost two-thirds of the way, actually almost three-fourths of the way, through the Gita. What does Krishna begin his teaching with? You're not your body. Soul is eternal. Body is temporary. Just read the Gita. So basically, again, we don't preach at people. How can I preach to someone if I don't talk to them and find out who are you? What are your assumptions? What are your fears? What are your aspirations? It's like a doctor that, you know, doesn't diagnose a patient, just starts throwing medicine at the patient. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the, yeah, the first step is diagnosis. You have to know the person. When we preach, it, it has to be a dialogue, not a monologue. I say after doing this whole monologue here, but, <laughs> but then you came voluntarily. You know, it, 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 it's, it's actually different. Like, let's say you hold, a, like Prabhupada said, if you hold a program and then you invite people, people come, they're coming to hear you so you can speak. But if you just meet someone or someone's just curious, let's say someone just wanders into one of our centers, they're not coming to hear a lecture necessarily. They're just curious. So you sit down to talk to them. And so you have to get to know them. You have to know who you're talking to. Otherwise, we may say the worst thing to them. There may be some part of our philosophy that'll just turn them off because we don't know them. Whereas if we prepared it, so, so a preacher has to, first of all, you have to like people. You know, you can't just 
preach to people, see them as theological categories. You are a conditioned soul. <laughs> they're not just theological categories, they're real people. And they have feelings and they have fears and hopes and prejudices and, and assumptions. And you, you know, it, it's a very personal thing where you get to know somebody and you, and you, and you, you know, you try to help them. <laughs>